Well, it's a joy to be with you this morning, and uh, I bring greetings to you from uh, Sister Church, the Shepherd's Church in uh, Cary, North Carolina. We are thankful for this ministry and what God is doing here, uh, not only through you as a people, but through the leadership of this church as well, as you seek to be that, uh, that light, that candlestick in the middle of this wonderful area of, uh, of Savannah, Georgia. And uh, it is a delight, as I said, to be with you. Take your Bibles, if you would, this morning and come with me to the book of Titus chapter 1. The book of Titus chapter 1 as we come to the Word of God together. I'm just going to read a couple verses. We'll get into the context of it as we think about giving a charge to the elders this morning. But hopefully you'll find it as beneficial for each and all of us as we gather around the Word of God this morning. You know that the book of Titus is one of the pastoral epistles, or at least that which we refer to as a pastoral epistle. We got First and Second Timothy, and we've got the book of Titus. Titus and First Timothy were probably written about the same time, if you remember, the Apostle Paul was just recently let out of prison in Rome and actually went on what many call the fourth missionary journey, which was basically a return to some of the mission work that had been done on previous missionary journeys. But one of those works that seems to be quite new and quite uh, historic was on an isle called Crete, where Paul had been there for a short time on his journey to come to Rome as a prisoner the first time. And we're not sure exactly when did he minister? When did he accomplish the task that was done on this isle? It may have been that he was let out of prison, traveled to Crete, did some witnessing there, saw a number of individuals come to Christ as Savior, and thus there was this significant need to establish churches on the Isle of Crete. He has gone away from Crete, but he has left a compadre by the name of Titus on the Isle of Crete to perform the duties that he was not able to perform because of his absence. But he wanted to help in that situation, so he writes the book of Titus. Titus is one of those books that we often say is quite organizational. It's much like 1 Timothy, very distinct when it comes to local church and local church structure and that which is appropriate within the environment of a local church. As you know, 2 Timothy was extremely personal as a letter. It, in fact, was the swan song of the Apostle Paul when he finished writing out the three pastoral epistles together, two of them together, and then the last one, Second Timothy, he'd write after he was rearrested, and he was taken back to Rome and put in prison again. So sometime in that fourth ministry, somewhere in uh, that area of Macedonia, Paul writes 1 Timothy, he writes Titus, and these letters come on. One to Timothy at the church of Ephesus, a well-established church. But this one is to Titus and to brand new churches and brand new believers. In fact, I often say that when I look at the book of Titus, I look at that which I often refer to as the unexpected. The unexpected. Let me read just two verses this morning. The first one is found in Titus chapter 1, and I want you to look with me, please, at verse 5. It says, For this cause 
Left I thee, this is Paul addressing Titus, left I thee in Crete that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting and arrange for selection elders in every city as I had appointed thee. In verse 9, he concludes some thoughts about those elders when he says, clinging fast, the faithful word, as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound, that is to encourage others with this sound teaching, so that they could rely successfully on that teaching in light of anything that would come their way, even that that may contradict that. That he may by able or by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Why did I start by saying the book of Titus had to be that which was unexpected? Well, maybe unexpected needs to be defined in a way, and there's an illustration I like to use when I think of unexpected. I think back of a story told of an individual who was an intruder into homes, and before he would intrude, he would case out homes. And as he would case these homes out, he would discover when the occupants of those homes were not there, and thus not available, and that would give him the opportunity to break into the home and take the goods from those homes for his own benefit. And so he had watched one family for some time, and he had taken notice that they always seemed to be gone at a certain hour at night on a certain day. And he watched him and watched him as he cased out the home, and finally he made a decision that he was going to rob that home on a certain night that he believed they would probably not be there. Well, that night came, and he came, he broke into the house, Everything was pitch dark around him. There was no light anywhere. And he had gotten into the house and he felt quite satisfied that nobody was there. But he thought he'd at least just put out a call. And he said, uh, is anybody here? And all of a sudden there was an answer. And the answer was this. We see you and Jesus sees you. He was caught by a little bit of the unexpected surprise. And then he heard it again. We see you, and Jesus sees you. In fact, it happened a third time. We see you, and Jesus sees you. And he was caught off guard with this, and so he took a flashlight, because it was so dark in the house, and he shined the flashlight from where the voice was coming. Here was a parrot in a cage. And as he shined the flashlight on the parrot, the parrot said again, we see you and Jesus sees you. And he got a chuckle out of this and kind of laughed and decided he would turn the light on. And so he turns the light on in the dark room, only to look to see the parrot in the cage. And sitting under the parrot is a large Doberman pincher. And the parrot says, attack, Jesus, attack. Unexpected was that Doberman pincher. When I come to the book of Titus, I kind of feel the same way. For here were individuals. I mean, Paul said about these individuals, he said they were, as a nation, horribly licentious. 
He said, you are a people guided by wicked passion. You're known to be liars. In fact, in the old King James, not only did he call them evil beasts that love cruelty, in the old King James they called them slow bellies. Or it simply meant, from the Greek thought, they were idle gluttons. And yet from this group of people, a number of individuals came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's interesting about this book of Titus is all these individuals, when they would have received this book through Titus and this information that became from the beloved Apostle Paul, I believe they would have found this extremely unexpected in their newfound faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, I remember in June of 1965, you see, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. About two months before June of 1965, an individual came into my life, and for the first time, I was about 18 years old, I heard the gospel of Christ for the first time. And this individual was extremely persistent, and she witnessed to me and witnessed to me, in fact, I could never get out of her grasp whereby she would not sit down and take me through the Romans road or take me through John's message in the gospel and how I needed to repent of my sins and receive the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. In June 1965, about 1.30 in the morning, as this individual was sharing the Word of God with me at a time when I had hoped that she would not even be up, but she was up. I had stayed out late that night and had come to our home where my mom and dad were living. You see, I left home in ninth grade, but I came back for my 12th grade year because my father was dying a terrible death of cancer, and I came back. You see, I come from the hippie generation, except I lived in Wisconsin, so I didn't have an ocean, so you can't be called a hippie unless you got an ocean. But I had come back home after 11th grade and uh, came home to watch my father die a terrible death. But as I was there, I heard this plan of salvation day in and day out from this individual who was in our home. And that night I got home about 1.30 in the morning, real late, hoping this individual who had spent two months sharing the gospel with me would be in bed and I would not be bothered again, but she had stayed up again waiting for me. When I came into the home that night, she sat me down by an old green couch on 8th Street in Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin, and she walked me through the Romans Road again. And that night, I knelt down by that old couch and I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior and asked Him to forgive me of my sins and give me that life that this individual had shared with me for over two months. And finally, the Spirit of God broke my heart and I became a Christian. It wasn't too long after that, for the first time in my life, I would walk into a church. I remember it quite easily. I rode up there on my motorcycle with my leather jacket on. I didn't look like anybody that was in that building, but I walked into that building to sit in a, in a pew with the individual who had led me to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I remember coming to that church and you know what? The whole Christian life, what I found that day when Christ came into my life was a wonderful change in my life. 
but was unexpected was what I was going to see, learn, and have to become because of what took place that night at 1.30 in the morning. I remember sitting in that church. The youth group had come back from an experience of a week of, of Christian camp. And the tradition of that church on that Sunday night, that was my first service to ever sit in a church service. And I remember sitting there and watching this youth group because they would traditionally be the choir that night. And they were lining up and they were coming into the choir loft. And I remember every young man that walked into that choir loft had a tie on, he had a coat on. They all looked so sharp. And here was me sitting in the pew. When the girls came in, they were gorgeous. Beautiful dresses. They all looked so nice as they all came into the choir loft. And as they were getting ready to open the service with a song and sing from the top, these were all high schoolers just like me. And I was looking at them and thinking to myself, there is no way I'm going to fit into this environment. Absolutely no way. And then with the pastor, I remember, stood up to preach that night. And he said, everybody turned to such and such a passage, you know. I mean, when I thought of the Bible, I remember the first time that I received uh, a verse. You ever see those verses on paper? Somebody writes you, they want you to change your life. Well, I, I received a verse and it said, First Corn, chapter 5. And I thought, First Corn? What is First Corn? Well, it was First Corinthians. I had no accustomed with this stuff. And I remember that night when the pastor told the congregation to turn to a certain passage in the Bible. Do you know that everybody in my role got to that passage within seconds? I had a Bible in my lap that this woman had given to me, and I could not find where the pastor had told me. I was embarrassed to death sitting there. You see, I was entering into the unexpected. I didn't realize that Christianity was such a major change in life. I could see it with my eyes. I could feel it in the role I was sitting there. And when I first came into that environment, I'll tell you, my first cause in life was, how do I get out of here? And when this service is done, I am out of here as quick as possible. Folks, I was a truly born-again believer. I knew Christ as my Savior. But everything around me was unexpected. Everything. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Do you realize how new that is? Old things are passed away. Do you realize how passed away they are? And all things are becoming new. Do you realize how new they all are because of what Christ does at a moment in time in our personal life when you come to Jesus Christ as Savior? Isn't any wonder that such a group of people who become the recipients of Titus, this wonderful book, had to have it so summarized like in chapter 2 when he said in verse 11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. He said, this grace that you've responded to, I have made it available in a common nature to all. It is there. It is available. And he says, what has it taught us? 
Keep in mind, these were summary thoughts of a context that began in chapter 1 and works its way into chapter 2 and then into chapter 3. But Paul brings it to a summary for these, these young believers who are entering into this unexpected style of life. And what he says to them, he says, This salvation you have will teach you to isolate your past. He put it this way, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust. He said this salvation, he said it will teach you to identify all of your new potential. When he said that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And he also said, this new salvation will teach you to anticipate a wonderful future. Remember, this was all summary when he said, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, to these new believers, this was extremely unexpected. And Paul had to walk them through verse by verse, and he was, he was bringing character to the forefront. But he wasn't just bringing character. It was not just a manner of life. He was also bringing to them an essence of truth. In fact, if you follow this through, you will find when we come to the idea of eldership, and we're going to get there, amen. And when we come to the reality of the congregation as a whole, you will find that character plays an essential role. In fact, he started chapter 2 by simply saying what? But speak by the things which become sound doctrine. Oh, we heard that earlier in chapter 1. We read the verse. And why is the soundness, the healthiness of soundness of what we call doctrine so important to a body of people? Well, he is going to challenge the aged men, the young men, the aged women, the young women. And what is he going to say? Well, you that are so unexpected at this moment to see what Christ has done in your life and what now he is going to continue to do in your life. You see, it's this Jesus he summarized by that wonderful thought of this grace of God when he said, you have a past that you're going to isolate now because of Christ. You have an identity now that's all new potential. Oh, and by the way, you have a future that's so wonderful, you should anticipate it. But what was unexpected for these young believers were all the truths that they were going to have to line up with as they come to the Word of God here. You know what is even more unexpected? Let's get to the point of the morning, amen. That God was going to provide a leadership that was going to carry them along. So all that was so unexpected that identifies Christianity could be fulfilled in their lives in those summary verses. And it's because of that we come to this little note you will ordain, or that is, you arrange for selection is the neat little Greek word there in verse number 5 of chapter 1. For he's about to give a challenge to the leadership. 
Everything is unexpected. Even down to the leadership. But the leadership will take all the unexpected and bring it to reasonableness. So here's a challenge to those men who serve as elders of this marvelous Church of Hope and to Jason, the newest elder. Let us keep in mind, folks, that from this Word of God, eldership is a design of church leadership that was divinely established. Eldership is a design of church leadership that is divinely established. And do you know that our God had two reasons for doing it? No, it didn't come because of your pastor or because of me. We did not establish this. It was our God who established it. It was our God who so inscripturated it and put it into this wonderful passage, as well as in places like 1 Timothy chapter 3, where he addressed a very established church in Ephesus. But this is not established. These are young churches. These are churches of filled with young believers where almost everything in Christendom is unexpected right down to leadership. And here Paul is going to tell Titus to teach the people this, that this eldership is an absolute design of church leadership, but it's a divine design. And the two reasons he gives is simply this. Number one, as elders, and I charge you, we are the purveyors of orthodoxy. Well, let me give you the second reason, and then let's get to the scriptures, okay? We are, we are the purveyors of orthodoxy, number one. And we'll see that especially in verse nine and some following thoughts. But we are also not only the purveyors of orthodoxy, we are the example of orthopraxy. The purveyors of orthodoxy and the example of orthopraxy. They say, wait a minute, orthodoxy. What is orthodoxy? Orthodoxy is simply that which is right plus biblical opinion. That which is right plus biblical opinion. In seminary, we often talk about the theology. Feel God, ology, the study of words, study of words about God. And we build ologies. We are constantly studying these words. Bibliology, study of the words about the Bible. Soteriology, study of the words about salvation. Orthodoxy is nothing but the study of the words of that which is established as being right because it is based on what we call biblical opinion. Orthoproxy is a different word. It means simply that which is right plus practice. Let's face it. Where would truth be if it was not up to living up to the truth? So when we think of leadership, it's not only a challenge that we are the purveyors of truth, and that truth is not ours. It is biblical opinion. But we are also we are also those who set and practice the example. Come back with me to the first reason, and we'll do all we, 
you know, this is a great church because I can hardly see that clock back there. What a blessing to be able to preach when you can't see the clock. Amen. I love that. Well, no, we'll get you out of here in time. Amen. But let's go back to that first, that very first reason why church leadership is divinely established. And that is he established elders and I challenge the elders of your church to be the purveyors of orthodoxy. We find that holding fast. Notice, holding fast the faithful word. It means to cling to. Do I need to establish what is the faithful word? Well, let me make a statement about it in a minute. But let's start with this idea to holding fast, to cling to, to hold firmly, to be devoted to it. In fact, if we could teach a lesson in language, we would say this is a, what we call a present middle you would say, why is that important that it's a present middle in the, real, in the original language of the New Testament? Well, as to the elders themselves, men, for you, it is extremely important because with the middle voice, it simply means that you have made a choice as an elder that the Word of God is over every other allurement that presents itself to you. You see, the idea to hold fast means that you will devote, you will cling yourself to the Word of God, and you will do it at all costs. There are no exceptions here. God knew exactly what He was doing when He put it into the middle voice. He didn't say, I have to force this upon you. He didn't say, I've got to drag you into this kicking and screaming all the way. He says, no, as an elder, you will take it upon yourself that no other allurement in life will ever seek to discourage or move you away from that which you have determined you will cling to devotedly. That's the middle voice. The present tense simply says, I'll make it my pattern for life. It will be my habit. It's not point action. Once it is completed, I can say that's behind me. Now God put the words down in such a special way and Paul knew exactly what he was telling Titus when Titus was to set these leaders into the church that would be there for the benefit of the congregation. He says, these are men who by their own resolve have concluded that they will not be moved. In fact, no matter what the cost may be, they will cling to this marvelous word of God. For this is the orthodoxy by which we live. This is the right by which biblical opinion drives our every thought. In fact, we will not only cling to this, we have determined it will be the habit, it will be the pattern of our life. Because it's what we cling to that's so essential. He simply calls it what? He calls it that faithful word. By the way, what makes the Word of God faithful? I mean, what is it that he says and describes is faithful when he says the faithful Word? Well, what makes it faithful? If you understood it and you put all these verses together, and I don't want to take the time to isolate too long here, but what he's simply saying is this is the Word that our God gave to our apostles 
And the apostles have now placed it into print. And that word is the very word of Almighty God. In fact, he'll later establish this. Remember when he wrote 2 Timothy, he gave us probably the greatest, the greatest central truth on bibliology ever given to man when he said what? The Bible is given by inspiration of God. It was not breathed in, it was breathed out by God. And through these marvelous apostles, we've got the New Testament scriptures and that revelation, what he is saying is what, if you put it and put context, as you know, remember the old, old English classes where you had to learn nouns and verbs and adverbs and adjectives, and you found out that every sentence had a, had a main clause, an adverbial clause, an adjectival clause, and you had to work through all those things. It's the same thing in the Greek language. It's a language of sentenceology. You read sentences and it relates this. And what he's, Paul is saying here is, Titus, you can tell the leadership of the church that the word of God that they are to keep at any cost is the word of God that is faithful because it has come through the apostles who have been inspired to give this text so that we have the very word of God before us isn't it any wonder he said there in second timothy when he wrote that to the church of ephesus and he talked about all scripture is given by inspiration of god remember how he closed it in verse 17 he said what he said this well let me just read it to you that would be easier right amen he said there in chapter 3 and he said that the man of god man of god may be what may be complete or perfect it's not sinless perfection, by the way. It's a neat little Greek word, perfect there, or complete you may have. He said, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. In Greek, it's simply the word that means able to meet every demand. Able to meet every demand. He said, the word of God has been given through faithful apostles. And now you and I have the very text before us. Why? Because, folks, it's the only means by which you and I in our own frailty of humanity can meet every demand of life. And your elders are to be committed to be the purveyors of that orthodoxy. In fact, he said we are to cling to that word of God because we have placed ourselves in partnership with it. Because it is the faithful word of God dependable, trustworthy. You know, it's kind of like the thought, i got to be quick, the thought we got in the 119th Psalm. Remember when the psalmist goes before God and he says, wherewithal shall young man cleanse his way? And God says, by taking heed thereto according to thy word. He said, you want to keep the line drawn between two significant points clean? That's the Hebrew word. He said, the only way you can do it is you got to take heed to the word of God. And then remember how he taught us to take heed to it? Verse you probably memorized. Verse 11, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. How valuable is the word of God? Well, it's found in the word hide. That's the Hebrew word that means this. Something I've done in the past. So when the future becomes the present, it'll be available to benefit me. I know what Paul taught the church at Ephesus in 2 Timothy about the Word of God. He said, it'll help you to meet every demand in life. Now listen to the psalmist. 
He says, you put the word of God in your heart. Why? You may not think you even need what I'm preaching on this morning. But you take the word of God, you put it in your heart in the past. Why? So when the future becomes the present, it's available to benefit you. And how does it benefit you? Remember verse 11? Thy word have I hid in my heart. Hide. Treasure up is the Hebrew word there. That what? That I might not sin against thee. You want something that destroys and makes life more demanding and miserable? It's called sin. That's right. When it comes to knowing how to live life, sin will make you stupid. But the Word of God, the Word of God will give you everything you need to meet all the demands of life. And so He challenges the elders to be the purveyors of that truth. We see it in its very ruling because the elder himself is to do this. We see it in its very word as it's structured. But notice the reason for it. To exhort, we're back to Titus chapter 1, in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. To those who are willing to hear this word of God, he says to exhort. It's interesting, Paul will take the same idea. Here it's a present infinitive. He'll make a present imperative out of it when he comes to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Remember that great verse, preach the word, amen? I don't know about you, but us pastors live by it. Verse 2 of chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. You got five imperatives in that verse, five of them in one verse. He says, preach the word, that's an imperative. He says, be ready. That's an imperative. But then he goes into three unique imperatives. And one of them is the word exhort. It's an intellectual term. No, you know what? Let me give it a better phraseology. It's actually an emotional term. It means that the preaching of the word of God actually encourages us. It moves us. As with the psalmist in the 119th Psalm, you finish verse 11, you come into a Hebrew imperative in verse 12 where he says, Blessed art thou, O Lord. You want a great life? You want an encouraged life? Have a life where you honestly can wake up in the morning and say, Lord, be blessed. You notice it doesn't say God bless you there. It says you bless God. The reason is because of the exhortation of sound doctrine. For those who are willing to hear, it's an exhortation. It takes truth, it promotes it continuously into our life. This soundness of doctrine, this healthiness of truthfulness. And actually, you know what, you know what soundness is? In Greek, it's a neat little idea. It means to have a correct view of reality. You see, we live in the danger of never being able humanly to honestly define reality. You want some help? It's this book. This book, my friends, will help you define reality. That's the word sound. The soundness of the Word of God. The one thing you could never replace in this church is the soundness of the Word of God. And my challenge to your elders is never leave that soundness. 
There is nothing in this world, humanly speaking, that can measure up to the healthiness, the truthfulness, and the, 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 the correctness in viewing reality as human beings than the Word of God itself. It is sound. He'll say it in verse 1 of chapter 2. Speak thou the things which become what? Sound doctrine. He'll even bring it back to us in chapter 2. After he challenges verse after verse how old men who in Christ should live, how young men in Christ should live, how old women in Christ should live, how young women in Christ should live. I know old is a tough word for all of us, but at my age, I can get away with saying it up here. He even challenges Titus himself on the subject of character. But if you want to bring it down to a conclusion, he said in verse 15, Titus chapter 2, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Now those are three imperatives now. These aren't optional. He says, let no man despise thee. That soundness of truth is so essential. And to you who are willing to hear it, do you realize the best thing that your elders can ever give to you is going to be this book? It's going to be to come to an understanding and a comprehension of the Word of God. And therefore, I challenge your elders. I challenge your elders to be known as the purveyors of orthodoxy. You may say, but not everybody wants to come to that orthodoxy. And that's why the challenge is so great. Because notice he says, it's not only the word exhort that we find back there in verse 9. When we look at the reason that we follow the ruling as to the word of God. But he says also to those who contradict, he says, refute. It's the word convince. That is to use the word of God. Not simply to isolate people, but he says to bring about or to bring forth conviction. That is, the Word of God is a book of evidence, full of arguments from the Sovereign Himself. And you know what? If you're an opponent to the Word of God, it'll beat you down. But it won't leave you beaten down. It may take your philosophy of life and make it assumed to be baseless. But my friends, when you are done with the Word of God, it will take that Word of God and it will change you and move you in the direction you ought to be in. So I challenge your elders, whether there are those who sit by you with a willingness to hear the Word of God, I challenge you to exhort them with this sound doctrine. And when there are those who do not want your Word, when they do not want to respond to your Word, we do not stand as the judges of the universe, but we come with this convincing piece of literature from our sovereign God, and you bring it that you might bring about what? The change even in those individuals, even if that change does not take place. The point is this, my friend and my dear brothers who serve as elders. You see, a responsible elder 
is to be able to feed the flock. But sometimes he is also to be able to drive away the wolves. For if by truth we do not accomplish this task, then we are only fattening the sheep to be devoured by the wolves. So you see, we have a challenge to our elders. The challenge is one that's reasonable because it was God, not us. This organization did not develop this. Just as unexpected as it must have been for these young believers coming into an early church and finding that there was a leadership, yet they were to come to this comprehension that by this leadership and its unique identity, they have something that's divinely established. And by that reasonableness, God said to these elders, I challenge you to be those kinds of leaders who will be the purveyors of orthodoxy. Let's just quickly do the second reason and the few moments that are in front of us. Elders are also the example of orthoproxy. There should be no, you would think, unexpected demand on character by the time you get to these thoughts in verse 6 and 7 and 8. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot and unruly, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willing, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate. If you walk through verse 6, you walk through verse 7, you walk through verse 8, you would come to a conclusion an elder is not simply commanded to his orthodoxy, but an elder is also commanded to his orthoproxy. In fact, if you walk through this book unexpectedly, character principle after character principle after character principle, you can't read chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 without saying what demands God has put upon every one of us. Oh no, they're not demands. Their accomplishments. Because if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Brand new. Not demands. Accomplishment. Or as one old preacher used to play, put it, he said, always be confident of this one thing when you preach the word of God. They may take some offense, but their conscience will always be on your side if they know the Lord. And isn't it so true? Let me just quickly go through it. For here, we find there is one general statement made. Elders, it is not a matter of choice here. In character, in orthoproxy, you are to be blameless. Little word, it simply means exemplary. One whom no charge could ever be brought against. Nobody could lay a hand on that. And it's reasonable. Because if you look at verse 7, he says something about, he says, for a bishop. Isn't it interesting that an elder and a bishop are used in the same context to identify the same person? 
Now, this is not a form of Catholicism here. This is a form of identifying a man who's been put into a position by God through the ministry of the local church and for your benefit. He's not only referred to as an elder earlier in verse 5, but here he is called a bishop, and it is simply that this one who is to be blameless, it states this, he is a steward of God. He is God's steward. That means he serves under a greater shepherd. That shepherd being the Lord himself. And if you've ever studied the book of Hebrews in chapter 13, my friends, do you realize that every elder will be held accountable for that eldership before the sovereign of the universe? That's what he meant by the word steward. My brothers, who are elders, you are stewards. I'm not going to take time to go through all of these, but we have the domestic qualifications. It relates that steward to his wife. Relates that steward to his children. Children who are believers. Children who are not uncontrollable. That is, they're not known for riot or unruly. When we think of these elders in character, he addresses them negatively. He says they're not self-willed. As an elder, you can never live for the satisfaction of your own appetites. You cannot soon be angry, prone to temper, not given to wine. <laughs> I'm not going to go into the depths of this. I'll leave that up to the pastor, amen. But addiction plays no role in his life. He's not a striker. Never settles a disagreement by physical force in any form or intimidation. Violence is not a part of him. Not greedy of filthy lucre. That is gain that is shameful. The idea here actually when you put the words together means to bend the word of God you're committed to in your leadership to manipulate people for your own personal benefit. To you, our elders, this is never your privilege. Positively, and I'm done, you're a lover of hospitality. You love the stranger, amen. An interesting shift, is it not? If you read the letter, it's a shift from brotherly love to stranger love. You value community. Yes, elder, even above your own privacy and your own individuality. He's a lover of good. He delights in it. He's definitively sober. That is, he's sensible, he's prudent, he's thoughtful. He curbs his desires, his impulses. He has an orderly life, sensible and self-controlled. He is holy. Simply means he's devout, not sinlessly perfect. But he's unpolluted. He's temperate. He seizes control of his life. He lives with a term of restraint. He's under proper control. So as we close our service, let me simply say to each and every elder of this church and to your newest elder now, these are positions of unexpected reality when you bring it to the place 
that these positions have been divinely established, not by man, but by God. And his reasonableness was simply this, that the elders of this church would be the purveyors, the purveyors of truth, of the word of God, and that the elders of this church, so if they're the purveyors of orthodoxy, then they are to be the example of orthopraxy. No wonder Paul understood when he said, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And he gave this testimony, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. To the elders of this church, I challenge you, only by that relationship will you be able to fulfill these two reasonable responsibilities. Let us pray together. Father, I thank you for this wonderful congregation for Hope Church. Thank you for the men that you've called to bring leadership to this church. Thank you for Pastor, one of the elders. Pray that you'd use this church for your honor, for your glory, and that you advance the cause of Christ here in every form or measure. There are many in this community that know not Jesus Christ, but how shall they ever come to know Christ since you have established the church as a candlestick and its leaders like stars, stars in the heaven, not stars on a Hollywood stage. No, they are the light. And in a darkened world, Father, we are so desperately in need of churches like hope and leaders like the elders here to shine forth the light in these dark corners. God bless this church, bless these elders, and use this church to reach this community for Jesus because there's a day coming that we're going to hear an upper call and we're going to hear the shout of the archangel. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which remain in our lives shall be caught up together to meet our Lord in the air. Father, we do not want to come home alone. We like to bring many from this community with us. We're the servants. You're the Savior. We look for that blessing on this church. In Jesus' name, amen. As we've been in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, for the last...